Our Heavenly Father, please would you go before us now and speak your living word into our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week we began a little series meditating on the names that scripture gives to the Son of God uh, when he entered this world in our human flesh. And if one of those names is the one we looked at last week, the name Emmanuel, God with us or God is with us, with all of staggering implications for who Jesus is and what he means for our world, this week I want us to meditate on what is in fact a a cluster of four names, also taken from the prophecy of Isaiah and also applied to that same child of which Isaiah spoke in chapter 7. This child to be born of a virgin and given the name Emmanuel will also be called, Isaiah tells us in just a couple of chapters later, a chapter that you might like to open, chapter 9 of Isaiah. He will be called in verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a famous cluster, of course, familiar to anyone who has sat through a Christmas service of Nine Lessons and Carols or Handel's Messiah. So famous and familiar that we might glide past them without much notice. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In one, one commentator in says that some have actually spent a great deal of energy attempting to make these titles appear very normal. But he says they are not. And indeed they are not. They are far from normal. Does anyone other than the faculty remember that song, Sound of Silence? You know, Paul Simon? Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk to you again. Well, that's the situation that the people of God were in when Isaiah spoke these words, you might remember from last week. As far as the eye can see, it's all doom and gloom. See chapter 9, verse 1, people everywhere just staggering in darkness. Verse 2, deep darkness. And in this darkness, into this darkness, Isaiah is given this vision that no one else can see, which enables him to speak a word of light into darkness. And it is, as the song puts it, like a softly creeping vision, with a succession of mountain ranges visible on the horizon, the first and the most immediate, perhaps, being the deliverance of Judah from the terrifying invasion of the Assyrians who managed to reach right up to the neck of Jerusalem. And then beyond that, a second range on the horizon, this time a political and geographical deliverance from an eventual exile out of the land of Palestine into Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And then beyond that, far in the distance, one that towers over them all, not a temporary ceasefire, not a recovery of lost political or geographical territory, but a spiritual deliverance of cosmic proportions from the darkness and captivity of sin and death. And right at the heart of this softly creeping vision is this figure slowly coming into focus. Is it King Hezekiah? Maybe. But no, not ultimately. Cyrus? No, not ultimately. Ultimately, it is no less than God himself that Isaiah can see. Far off in the distance, Emmanuel, God himself, who will break 
onto the canvas of human history, virtually imperceptible at first, a tiny embryo hidden inside the womb of the Virgin Mary, but no less than God the Son himself, born as a child in Bethlehem of Nazareth. And the government will be upon his shoulders, Isaiah says, for he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's just spend a few moments on that cluster of names themselves before drawing out some implications that they might have for our own lives. First of all, he is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Unlike any other ruler or political leader who needs to surround themselves with advisers and counsellors to make up for their deficit in wisdom, this king will be the embodiment of wisdom and counsel itself, for the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, we are later told by Isaiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord." But not just the embodiment of wisdom and counsellor, a wonderful counsellor. The word wonderful is so overused today that it's virtually meaningless. Oh, what wonderful shoes you're wearing. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. How, no matter how comfortable, no matter how shiny they are, they aren't wonderful. Unless they're Philip Kearns, of course. <laughs> but no, even, not even Philip's shoes are, are wonderful in the way that... This counsellor is wonderful. See, when the word wonderful is used here to describe this counsellor, it ought to conjure up all the associations that the Bible makes with only God himself. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Before this embodiment of wisdom, every other word of wisdom simply falls in a heap. I mean, here is the sort of counsellor who comes face to face with an anxious world, a world that's desperate for wisdom and desperate for answers, isn't it? And instead of saying the answer to your worries is material security, he says, what good is it for someone to gain the world and lose their soul? Instead of saying the answer is to invest more in your family, he says, if anyone does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, they cannot be my disciple. Instead of saying the answer is to cultivate a good self-esteem, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Instead of saying the answer is to work hard, invest in your careers, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, never has a counsellor spoken like this counsellor. Once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder, says the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Well, before this wondrous counsellor, the wisdom of the wise will perish, you see. The intelligent of the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Even kings will shut their mouth in his presence. I mean to say, who would ever have thought, what genius would ever have conceived that a child born into the obscurity of a manger in Nazareth would also be no less than mighty God himself. 
The heroic God who, as in the day of Midian's defeat, Isaiah reminds us in verse 4, shatters the yoke and breaks the rod of oppression. Mighty God? Helpless child? What kind of might is this? Remember the day of Midian's defeat when God said to Gideon, your, your army is far too big. Send the frightened ones away and 22,000 left. And then there were 10,000. And the Lord said, it's still far too big. Eventually, Gideon is left with an army of 300. And with no more than a shout, the sound of trumpets and some broken bits of pottery, they scatter an army as thick as a great swarm of locusts. And the Lord delivers Midian into their hands. For if the foolishness of God is wiser than men, so too is the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. It's interesting here we're told that the government will be upon this child's shoulders. In the whole of the Gospels, I think there's only one thing that's described to have been upon Jesus' shoulders. Do you remember? That's right. It's the cross that he carried outside the walls of Jerusalem and to which he was nailed and strung up to die. For my power is the kind that is made perfect in weakness, you see, says the Lord to this servant, to his servant Paul. The weakness of frail human life, the weakness of suffering and death, a weakness that shatters the yoke of sin and death and breaks its power and its guilt. He is wonderful counsellor, mighty God, and then everlasting father. Now, with this one, we might have a little bit of difficulty. Aren't we talking here about the son who is to be born? How can the son also be called the father? Look, I don't think this title here, everlasting father, is a direct reference to the person of the father or the first person of the Trinity. Instead, I think it's referring to what theologians have sometimes called the fatherhood of God, an attribute of God himself, and therefore something in which all the three persons share. And so this is telling us, and and therefore part of the name and the identity of this child, of this son, is that he is to be the one who uniquely reveals and introduces and welcomes us into the fatherhood of God. What is God like? He is not a capricious tyrant. He is not some unknowable mystery. He is not some pitiless stranger. He is not a force. He is not some hypothetical placeholder, a particle like the Higgs boson. No, he is father-like. Father-like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes, as that hymn puts it, meditating, of course, on the words of Psalm 103. Father-like, he tends and spares us. How do we know that? Because just as any shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, that's what this God does. He is the shepherd who enters this world and lays down his life for the sheep. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. Oh, he knows it all right. 
He knows what it is like to be a defenceless and vulnerable child. He knows poverty and displacement and homelessness. He knows danger and tyranny. He knows what it means to be misunderstood and exploited and marginalised. He knows what it's like to seek one's daily bread. He knows hunger and thirst. He knows what it means to have a body that aches and slowly gives way. He knows mental and psychological and spiritual distress. He knows loneliness. He even knows death. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, patiently bearing our sin and alienation from God and one another and all the tragic, God-forsaken consequences of our cursed existence, rescuing us from all our foes. He is father-like, not for a moment, not when he feels just when he feels like it, not when he's just got the energy to invest in his children, not just when he's not busy and undistracted by other things, but everlastingly. An everlasting father who is far as we might run from home, never stops waiting for us with his arms open wide and a fattened calf spread on the table. An everlasting father who chooses not to remember our sins, who takes them and hurls them into the depths of the sea. Have you ever dropped something into the sea? Snorkel, bracelet, golf ball? and gone looking for them, well, unless you're swimming in the Maldives, George tells me, where the water's like glass. Everywhere else, they're gone, aren't they? It's virtually impossible. I've never swum in the Maldives, by the way. So my experience is that it's, they're lost, they're gone. It's virtually impossible to find them, isn't it? And such is the everlasting fatherhood of God. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father. And then lastly, he will be called the Prince of Peace, not just of the wishy-washy, sentimental kind. No, it's the the kind of peace that's described here in verse 7 as the eternal reign of righteousness and justice. In other words, he is the Prince of a kind of peace that does not simply put an end to every hostility and enmity, but of the sort of peace that has the power to bring what is righteous and just out of even the most horrific evil. So that when all the enemies of God have exhausted their worst and scaled the absolute heights of evil by driving this promised child, the very author of life, to his death upon a cross, all that endures out of the ashes and rubble of that most scandalous assault against our maker are the green shoots of an invincible resurrection life that will eventually fill every crevice of this battered, worn-torn world with righteousness and justice. Strike this rock and water will come out of it from which the people will drink. He is the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
How are we to make sense of these four names, these four seemingly disparate, unconnected names, yet spoken of here as coming together in this one child to be born? Well, you might remember on one or maybe two occasions, Jesus would say something like this to his disciples. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I'm sure you're aware that there's been a tradition, a relatively modern one, it must be said, of taking that statement as a kind of sentimental affirmation of all the apparent virtues of childhood. You know, children are innocent, it is said, uncomplicated, free of the sort of cynicism that corrupts adult life, more open, more ready to trust, so that when Jesus picks them up in his arms and says, to such as these belong the kingdom of God, he's telling us that we should follow suit and uh, welcome the kingdom, enter the kingdom with all the open, openness and the trusting innocence of a child. In one sense, you know, who can argue with that? But I doubt it's what Jesus means. After all, you don't need to be a parent to know that children are hardly paragons of virtue. <laughs> and if you're not convinced, I'll introduce you to mine. <laughs> Just as my father would have introduced you to his. Children may not have the uh, opportunity and the power to be quite as destructive as we are as adults, but they are undoubtedly driven by the same sort of envy and hatred and cruelty. You put a weapon in their hands, as has happened in places like northern Uganda or Liberia in recent decades, and, or even just give them something as an innocuous as Snapchat or Instagram, and again and again children have shown themselves to be capable of every brand of evil, any, all the sorts of evil that any adult is capable of. And do you think Jesus didn't know that? And yet Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. What does he mean? I think Jesus singled out the child for a similar reason that any remotely just and humane society rightly and instinctively singles out a child for special kinds of protection. A child is afforded special protection by our laws in a way an adult isn't. Why? I think for the simple reason that they are vulnerable in a way that an adult is not. Comparatively, they are weak, powerless, defenceless. And so when they're faced with disease or famine or warfare, children will die before anyone else for the simple fact that they are children. So when Jesus says, enter the kingdom as a child, I take it he's really saying the only way to enter the kingdom is as an utterly defenceless, utterly dependent, weak, naked and vulnerable creature, like a child that has just emerged from its mother's womb. Like a child. Like this child. This very king, whose kingdom belongs to such as these. See, if there's a sense in which this child, who is given this fourfold name, tells us everything that is true and precious about our God, 
that he is all-wise, all-powerful, and everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's also a sense in which this child tells us everything that is true about ourselves, or at least about what it means to be authentically human before this God. That before him we are in fact fools, not wise, weak, not strong, that we are naked, defenceless, and unarmed, like vulnerable little children, utterly dependent on the mercy of an all-wise, all-powerful, father-like Prince of Peace, just like that inarticulate little baby in a manger, just like that child who, in utter dependence upon the spirit of wisdom who rested upon him was gradually filled with wisdom and grew in stature into a man, learning obedience through what he suffered and then finally surrendering his frail, crucified body to his maker upon the cross. When all is said and done, that's what it means to be authentically human before this God. Like a child, like this child, See, when Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, he's not foremost offering a solution to a problem, as he's simply, I think, stating a fact. When we all come face to face with this living God, there won't be any weapons, there won't be any brandishing of any books, there won't be brilliant minds or schemes or achievements, boasting... No, every form of self-protection, every form of self-reliance, every self-justification, all those walls that we have busily erected around our lives like little fortresses that have shut us out from the truth about ourselves and that have shut us out from one another, that have shut us out from God, they will simply crumble in his presence and be shown to be the futile pretenses that they are. For naked we came from a mother's womb, and naked shall we return. No, the only way into the kingdom is as a child. It's a simple statement of fact. But it's also a call. Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel make that clear. Truly I tell you, unless you change, unless you repent and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the call of the gospel, of course, to drop our weapons, to let go of our pretenses, and to entrust ourselves to this child who was born, this son who was graciously given, so that we might freely come to share in the authenticity of his own life before God. And when we do, even in the deepest tribulations of our existence, those haunting reminders of just how childlike and defenceless we really are, in the face of broken relationships, betrayed trust, inconsolable failures and regrets, uncontrollable biology, all all of those gut-wrenching endings of the things that we love, or even just those relentless daily struggles that mark out our fragile journey from adulthood, 
childhood to adulthood, through singleness, through marriage, through parenthood, and then into old age. That in all of these things, we are, as Paul says, more than conquerors. Not in ourselves, but as children gathered into the authenticity of the life of this child, destined to be conformed to his image, the family likeness of this son who is at once a child given for us and at the same time the all-wise, all-powerful, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Our loving God, Father, we rejoice in this precious gift of your son, a child who was born who is at once wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and at the same time, the authentic human life, living that life that we were called to live, but have so tragically failed to live for us, for our sake, in utter dependence upon you, as every creature should be. And in that perfection of that life, laid down for us and then taken up again in his resurrection, calling us now to enter into that reality so that we too might be conformed into his likeness. Father, please help us to rest in this precious truth Please help us to let go of the defences that we erect in our lives and surrender ourselves like a child to your goodwill with the assurance that you indeed are the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace.